drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello, hello and welcome. This is Series 3, Episode 11 of Drive-by Cinema, the podcast where we watch the movies so you don't have have to. to. With me is the cinema reviewing world's answer to Carol Vorderman or Rachel Riley. Because he can do long division. That's Paul. Hey, I can. Thank you, everybody. I wasn't bragging about it. You asked me. Okay. I can do long division. However, I can't do long multiplication with decimal points, as I found out the other day. I think it's worth just flagging the epoch, the political epoch of Liz Truss as Prime Minister. <laughs> Oh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it, at this point, it's like it's better than Coronation Street. Or it's more dramatic than Coronation Street at the moment, isn't it, really? It's just... Hang is on. Is it real? Just, I'm just checking the time. Yeah, I think it is now about time to mark the end of that epoch, isn't it, just about? I think yeah. it is drawing to its close now. It's in its twilight years after <laughs> three or four weeks. It's Difficult weeks. It's incredible. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of lost for words about everything that's going on. It's just almost... Paul, are you a member of the anti-growth coalition or the pro-growth alliance, presumably? Is the... I don't know. We've got people throwing super artworks as well on the other side of the political, <laughs> political spectrum, you know. And, and did you see the speech, though? Did you see the speech? It was GCSE drama. How can people care about art? And she was saying in the gallery, which you care more about, art or life? And somebody said, art. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time those oil-painting bastards got the comeuppance. <laughs> Van Gogh years of pollution. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That okra, okra and, uh, and cobalt blue. <laughs> terribly, terribly polluting. But yeah. When, listen, when Liz Truss talks about growth... Do you know what kind of growth is she talking about? Because debt. I mean, I'm against growth on like my testicles. <laughs> I might be for other kinds of growth. I don't know. Tell me more. Sell it to me. What growth I, do we want? I don't particularly want to sell it to you. You know, I mean, the bland consumer cycle that many of us find is locked into. You know, paying fourteen pounds ninety five for a meal in a pub, and the only reason we're paying that much is because it's decorated, or they spent tens of thousands decorating in a very bland manner that indicates a, uh, an agricultural heritage past. I mean... 20 quid for a heated jacket. You know. 20 quid for a heated consumers. jacket. 15 quid for a jacket. Hey, compared to 15 quid for a jacket potato, I think that's not bad, Richard. So, yeah. I, I, I don't know. If you want to get a heated jacket, I would get one now because they're going to be in short supply. But no, just generally, the whole consumer cycle were caught in. I, I think there is a lot of false economy creation, i.e. that Goods and services, whilst they're still goods and services, that we ultimately aren't good and ultimately don't serve us. I think <laughs> we've been locked into that as a society. Look, growth so, normally economically is defined as an increase in the GDP, the gross domestic product. Sure, yeah. Basically a sum of everything that we make or the monetary value of everything we make. Right. If you want that to grow, if you want GDP to grow year on year, there's only two ways of getting GDP to increase, right? Yeah. You either, one, increase the number of people doing work, or, two, everyone doing work has to produce more, like work harder. If you want 3% growth rate, but you don't want a 3% population growth rate, that means everyone's got to work 3% harder every year 
to maintain that growth rate. But I thought that's why Bill Gates existed. He did that for us. Well, he made us more productive. There have been two major revolutions, haven't they, in productivity? One was the Industrial Revolution, mm. where we got factories and machines to make us more to productive. To the Informational Revolution. The Information Revolution was the other one, where suddenly you didn't need a typing pool to write a letter. You know, you didn't need two or three people to get a letter done. You could just do it on a word processor on the boss's the boss could do it himself, basically. Sure. Everyone's productivity went up because now one person could do the work that two it was taking two people to do at least. Short of another revolution, and I, I, the only other one I can see on the horizon is AI, basically. Which by the way, doesn't mean I mean it probably means a lot of people don't have a job anymore, like artists. Like all seen. of us. Yeah. <laughs> Some of it's amazing, you know. Like I've have you been playing around with it or not? A little bit, yeah. 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 Well you know, I tried to make a logo for Drive By Cinema on it and <laughs> it was stuff of nightmares. <laughs> I'm, 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 well, I'm on Wonder at the moment, but I'm wondering whether to describe on Wonder, which is, it's pretty good Wonder. You know, you get kind of bland, but sometimes interesting AI artistic renderings. Sorry, Rich, you were saying anyway. So, apart from the technological informational advances and leaps that we've made, you're saying AI is the only other real thing that's ever going to happen. But putting that aside, right, I think people can imagine ways that they might make themselves a few percent more productive at their work. Yeah. Immediately, you know, like I could do it over the next few months, but not every year. Everyone reaches a point where they can't get any better, right? So most GDP growth, therefore, once everyone's reached saturation at whatever job they do, is either by people putting in more hours or, more likely, by the population growing. Yeah. And that's why if you're birth rate isn't so high that you're growing the population, you're just at replacement level. That's why immigration is normally very important for a developed Western economy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because it's a way of getting people in to grow the economy. I don't know, it's the same kind of people who who grumble that we can't take any more immigrants. Perhaps don't realise, you know, exactly, we're full up. Don't realise that they're also saying, perhaps rightly, that we can't have any kids either because we can't have too many kids. Mm-hmm. Because clearly the government is not capable of planning for growing populations and building more, you know, doctors' waiting rooms and hospitals. And although we got promised forty new hospitals, didn't we? I don't think did that happen. Did Boris Johnson build forty? <laughs> they built new an emergency one in a stadium, didn't they? When COVID happened, oh, they took it Does down. That count? Oh, they took it down. <laughs> well, that's great. Like the Olympic Village, isn't it? I mean, it's progress at least. It's 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 you know not got a, a long-standing environmental impact or legacy. But this is my problem, isn't it? These people who worship at the feet of the idea of growth don't realise what it takes to make growth. And what it takes is more people. And and, and so they're shutting the door on immigration at the same time, complaining about being anti-growth, an anti-growth coalition. It's infuriating, Paul. It's like being the only people sober in a car full of drunken people. (laughs) Are you not finding this month quite funny? I mean... I, I well, to, we, I said, didn't I, several podcasts ago that Liz Trust would be the comedy choice that could give us a, a few <laughs> moments of levity. All of this current affairs and political talk will be no use to anybody unless they really are a future historian looking at a very narrow window <laughs> in British political history. And, and thanks to Bill Gates, time capsules like this are so much cheaper than they used to be.
the interregnum period. Let's listen to some of your beautiful music. Here we go. One, two, three. Very nice. You know what, Paul? I've been listening to episodes of the Alan Partridge podcast. I didn't know there was one. I know you don't like Alan Partridge, despite the fact I dragged you to see him live. Didn't mind him at all. I thought it was quite funny. His podcast, which is called, I have to do this right, From the Oast House, is an excruciatingly um, well-observed podcast experience for anyone who does podcasting. And I cannot help but hear... Alan Partridge, in almost everything that, that we do now. Particularly our music, is that what you're about to say? Well, no, I was going to say, Alan Partridge's podcast music is actually sung by Alan Partridge himself. Uh, so that's somewhere we're falling down, because we're not crooning in a folksy style. Uh, <laughs> worth a listen, anyway, from the, from the O-Stars. So named because <laughs> that was... Uh, the name of the part of the middle class house that you know he and his friends, they all have a podcast named after a part of a middle class kind of a converted house. His was the Oast House. Yeah, could have been the barn or the Dove. He wanted Dove Cope. I think one of his friends got that. <laughs> yeah. So where are we in? In the mire of uh, of podcast land. Well, we're reviewing a video, uh, not a video, a film, and it is called I Came By. This was your idea, Paul. Yeah. When I say idea, it was like, that's free. It's on Netflix. It's current and it's, it's, you know, got a Halloween-y kind of theme. So let's watch it. When you suggested it, I had the strong impression, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you'd already seen it. Oh, well, you were wrong. Really, because you seem to, one, speak very authoritatively about it. And two, immediately afterwards... From the host house. Yeah, go on. (laughs) Immediately afterwards... Yes, I suppose that is an unpartridgeism. Immediately afterwards, you also uh, talked about a TV series we'd both been watching on Netflix, the Dharma, Jeffrey Dharma one. Yeah. And I assumed you'd link the two because there are connections, aren't there? They're both kind of similar in, in some ways. They're really similar. And I wonder if they kind of knew Dom was coming out or not when they made this. So I had assumed that that's why you suggested this film, because you knew it had a sort of Dharma-esque quality to it. No. Which is to say far too much about it already, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah. The other thing you said about it, though, and I don't think you made this up. You read this off, you know, the descriptions. So it's not your fault. But I just want to say, you did suggest that it was sort of like a Banksy-style artist. <laughs> He's not a Banksy-style artist. Well, from what we've heard of Banksy's proclamations, I don't think he is. But yeah, sorry, go on, carry on, Richard. Well, this is it. It really disappointed me. I was hoping we might see some... Banksy tortured. <laughs> no. But instead, only he's a tagger. He just tags... Well, it's not his name, is it? He tags a phrase. That's all. Yeah. That's the level of his art. And apparently we don't call this painting, we call it writing. You're going to continue writing then? Yeah, I'm going to continue writing. Look, I know I'm going to come across as very Alan Partridge here when I say that I don't totally get the kind of graffiti art that where they just write write their own name, you know, or not their real name. It's essentially bubble, bubble writing calligraphy, isn't it? No, no. Well, there's two types, aren't there? There's the type that you're describing where it's, you know, airbrushed and quite 3D and cool 
And the kind of thing that they could get a good job, you know, as a commercial artist doing. And there's the other kind where it's sort of more sort of uh, cursive and jagged at the same time. But there's also the type that's just done with a permanent marker and they just write a name, you know, a circle or whatever. Yeah. You know, that kind of basic level of tagging, which I think is more like a gangland, like territorial thing, I guess. I don't know. I'm guessing so, yeah. 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 There's a meta game going on here that I don't understand anyway. But I'm inclined to think that if you just write your name in permanent marker, you the vandal. And if you're spending the time to do kind of a mural, a mural, you know, with some artistry in it, then there may be some value in that. And I don't, you know, I don't deny that. It sometimes well, brightens up an otherwise dull space, doesn't it? When we get into this movie, we'll see. I'm not sure if the author or writer, how far distance from his character's perspectives and his perspectives, how much distance there is. You know, it's like, it's almost like, the debate, and it's a rather weak debate in the in the film. I think it's two or three minutes where they they're discussing the, you know, the relative merits of, of writing or tagging or whatever it is, and uh, like obviously it comes out of the main protagonist's voice, who is a tagger. There's there's an idea that there's you know this is a worthwhile activity. It's social justice, isn't social it? justice, yeah. That this is the truth of the streets, two. you know. For real, um, you know, we have some underground, you know. Uh, underpasses, up, you know, the freeways or highways are flying over, the kind of thing. We have those moments where somehow the grittiness of their circumstances mean that somehow what they communicate is more valid than people sitting at home watching EastEnders. Film starts with two guys with head torches on in a darkened apartment. I suppose it's an apartment. We learn later, I think, that it is. It looks a bit like an office, but it's just because it's a trendy, minimalist apartment, isn't it? They're tagging this wall, but they've also got all this technology. They can switch off the alarm system with an app on their phone. They're like hacking, aren't they? Yeah. The lead guy is played by George McKay, who was in a film we mentioned last week. He was in 1917. The, oh, fire. Uh, the, the World War One one-cut kind of conceit by Sam Mendes. He was the guy we follow around in that film. Was he indeed? All right. He was. Because last week we were talking about One Cut of the Dead, of course, and made reference to 1917. Yeah. Uh, and we also see him on his way home. He's on like a it's, – it's all taking place in London, isn't it? He's on a tube station platform, and there's signs about not, not begging and stuff on the platform. And there's someone there who's obviously homeless, a down and out, and also a well-to-do gentleman on the platform. And he pickpockets the wealthy-looking gentleman – but cleverly, what he does is he puts it on the floor behind him, yeah. pretends to find it, and he gives it back to the guy. He's grateful, but then he kind of solicits a reward for doing it, like 20 quid or something, which he then immediately pointedly goes and gives to the beggar on the platform. Mm. And then we see the homeowner of the apartment coming back with a girl, all drunk and about to get jiggy, presumably, and he finds when he turns his lights on, the I came by wording tagged on the wall of his apartment. Yeah, they're really shocked by it, but it's just a tag. You know, I thought they were going to blow the building up or something. Because <laughs> they, 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 I mean, they upsailed down the building, didn't they, to escape and did a bit of parkour, parkour. I thought, oh my gosh, he's going to be like Mission Impossible. It's going to be incredible. They're going to blow up a banker. I mean, he was just a successful kind of middle-ranking banker, I think. Enjoying, you know, his co- cocaine and pretty girl lifestyle. And you might say, you know, fair play to him or, or you know, whatever. Or you might disagree with how he lives. But at the same time, I mean, I'm not really sure how... I mean, these guys think they're doing something quite retributive and to do with social justice. 
by by tagging people's living rooms. I mean, these two guys are called Jay and Toby. That's the life of me. I can't remember which way around they are. What I'm saying is, are we supposed to think, yeah, they're doing something with social justice? Are we, are we supposed to think, gosh, they're really misguided? I think we're supposed to root for them, right? I think we're supposed to think that right. they're, yeah, they're, they're doing the, the right bankers thing. Know what's. But I mean, because well, I think I think they've researched the guys, and they, they you know they've researched them, and they, they've worked out these guys are real are real stinkers. Is that the idea? They're not just going for any banker, are they? I think that's right because we see them now, don't we, in their day job, which I think is like as tree surgeons or you know gardeners or something. Ah. One of them's up a tree, aren't they? And they're cutting down, cutting a branch off or something. That's how they access all areas, so to speak, when they're doing their research, when they're researching their next their next hit. Next and his mate, it's a, quite a well-to-do house, not an apartment this time, isn't it? Quite a grand house for London, certainly. His mate goes inside, ostensibly to go to the lavatory, and he immediately goes to the router, the, the internet Wi-Fi router. This is the one thing I wanted to ask you about. Of the back of the router. Plot yes. spoiler, he later uses information to shut off the Wi-Fi. Yes, yes. Are you saying? Are you asking me whether that's possible? Yeah. Almost certainly. I must say, this is something I do quite often. I take a picture of the backs of people's routers just because it usually tells you what the Wi-Fi password is on the back of the router, and it's a lot easier than having to ask someone. But on the back of that is like the... When you go to 168.111, you know... No, that won't be there, no. But what may be there is not only the Wi-Fi password, but also the administrator password of the router. That's sometimes printed on the back of routers. But people change that when they get the Wi-Fi. Yeah, you should change it as, as soon as you get the router, but people often don't. Hmm. And it was the case at one point that uh, to make things easier for new customers, the people who make those routers and the internet service providers who give them out would, would set it to something obvious that was printed in the manual like admin slash admin. Or oh, and people would never change it, right? Okay. People would never change it. And the thing about that is you can just kind of search the internet and try that out everywhere. If you print it on the back of the router, although it's also insecure, it does mean at least someone has to have physical access. So what we're to assume is he got in there, he took the photo, and then he became administrator by changing the password. Is that right, yeah? And he must, they must have set it up to permit remote remote administration so that they can do it from outside the network. Right. Although I guess they could just connect when they're there as well. But yeah, the idea is they can use that to switch the uh, Wi-Fi access off. off. Because all of these places, of course, have got like ring doorbell style Nest cameras and stuff. All the security systems are based on the internet as any rich person would obviously immediately have some kind of internet-based thing that they can watch their property from afar with, wouldn't they? Correct. And a poor person too. These days. Probably cheaper than having some guys come round and fit an alarm that goes off at inopportune moments and annoys the neighbours, isn't it? Yeah. So Jay is his mate, uh, not the sort of the guy who seems to be the lead at the beginning. And he's at home with his girlfriend, who I think is a lawyer or a trainee lawyer or something. She is. This becomes coincidental later. And she's uh, pregnant, isn't he? She discovers. With his babby. Toby, I think he's the main guy played by George McKay. He has a rather tempestuous relationship with his mother. He's 23. He's living at home, as most people do these days, uh, uh, given 
economic circumstances. But, I mean, again, are we supposed to be sympathetic towards him in the way that he treat, treats his mother? And who is his mother played by? I don't know. It's played by Kelly MacDonald, who rose to fame in train spotting. Whoa. As the girl? Yeah, the Renton's girl that he went home with and have a, an amusing incident around the dinner table with the family, don't they? The family, yeah. Whoa. Well, she's grown up now, hasn't she? So, uh, you know, the way he treats his mother, are we supposed to, again, root for him? Are we supposed to feel that somehow his mother's been lax in the way she's brought him up? Or are we just supposed to think, gosh, okay, he might be a social justice warrior, but he's he's not a very nice person. I mean, His mother, it works as a counsellor, I think, at uni. Uh, Is that right? Oh, there's the irony. She treats other people but doesn't treat her own son. Yeah, it must be kind of unbearable to have mum like that, wouldn't? don't you think, possibly? You might... Probably be a lot of I don't know, because be she's well treating a suicidal patient. And, and she makes a really good point. She said, if you really want to kill yourself and you're a medical student, why didn't you have the correct dosage of, of pills to alcohol? She said, maybe... Wow, she's just telling him to get it right. Do better. She was now not to She said, got to report you to your, your pharmacy. Uh, given your course. failure, maybe this was a cry for how much you wanted to stay alive rather than anything else. I thought um, it was a very powerful insight that you don't normally get in, in schlock sort of uh, run-of-the-mill... Netflix films. I was really impressed with that insight. Well done. Toby is trying to convince Jay, his partner, that this guy's house that they've been at doing the tree surgery stuff... Deserves doing. Played, by the way, by Hugh Bonneville. He's trying to convince him he's like a colonialist who's, you know, slaver family. <laughs> yes. You know, deserves... This, this, this. <laughs> Jay is uh, mixed race or black, and he's, he's like, I'm not buying that bullshit, you know. You know. Uh, he wants out. He wants out because... His girlfriend's pregnant. But he's not, he doesn't he's want the, to get in trouble. He's not buying this monolithic, you know. No, no. All, all white people are racist bullshit because you know, he's probably experienced the real stuff, hasn't he? So. And they've both been in prison. That's what the, we infer from some of this conversation. He's like, it's a piece of ivory. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, who wouldn't want a bit of ivory in the house? It doesn't mean he supports the slave trade kind of thing. And he makes a good point, you know, buying modern ivory compared to buying antique ivory. I mean, the deed is done, isn't it, you know, with antique ivory. So, so yeah, he's not buying all that crap, and he wants out because, he's, as it later transpires, he's, does he know that his girl is pregnant or not? No. He's about he does, to yeah, because she's... No, I think she's told him at this point. So I think that's the reason he's, he's impetus wanting to stay clean, not getting in any more trouble. And, and as you say, I just don't think he's convinced that this judge, you know, he might be um a progressive judge for all we know. I think that's what they try to infer at some point, don't they? There is some sort of this kind of crypto conspiracy stuff going going on here where like if people say they're progressive then they must be not progressive. They're just hiding their bad feelings, you know. And uh, this kind of thing like all judges and civil servants and people that represent authority must somehow like, you know, be part of a grand conspiracy to dupe us all. You know, it was almost like crypto alt-right, some of the aspects of the way that the lead character was thinking, wasn't it? You know, it was a bit incelish, wasn't it? We also get a glimpse at how their sort of tagging work actually has any impact because there's sort of a community of YouTubers who talk about these acts of, you know, protest, as it were. Yeah, and he's watching some YouTube's of someone criticizing him actually, but it's clear that there's a kind of social media activism thing that they are feeding into and feeding off. But Toby goes it alone, doesn't he? He's kind of had it with Jay not being too sure. He decides to go into that judge's place. I'm not sure how does he first get in there. He just 
breaks in, you know. He oh, he just breaks in, yeah. Turns his Wi-Fi security off. Now, so he thinks, wow, I've turned the Wi-Fi security off. I'm good. But, of course, as soon as he turns off the Wi-Fi security, the judge, who's just finished a game of squash, uh, gets a notification on his phone that his Wi-Fi security is, like, not working anymore. Are you a squash player, Paul? No. I mean, I have played it. I used to play it quite a lot. but Really? Not it looks very, very aggressive. Not for 30 years or so. It, it would be a good game, except the fact you frequently hit each other with rackets at an amateur level. So I think I think that's the appeal, isn't it? Isn't that what no, some guy no, get out of it? No, gen, gen, well, maybe some, but you know, it's generally like when you're amateur, it's like you don't want to hit people, but you do, kind of thing. And it's like, oh god, this is so unpleasant. <laughs> the- <laughs> The judge is playing squash with some detective in the police force, isn't he? Oh, I see. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The establishment. The liberal. I mean, in this case, the liberal establishment. Yeah. Oh, heck. All pretending. Oh, no, sorry, Rob. The crypto crypto liberal establishment who actually aren't (laughs) liberal, you know. This judge has spent years and years and years presenting a front where he's really for the rights of refugees and minorities, etc. Sorry, continue, Richard. Toby's taken a picture of his judge, the judge's father off the mantelpiece, the unreconstructed. He's not skew with, yeah, yeah. No, he takes it off because he oh. was going to tag that place, wasn't he? I think he was looking for a blank wall to tag, but something distracted him. I don't know why. He ends up going down to the cellar. There were noises, I think, which is where the judge seems to have like a miniature office, a little bit of space down there, and a pottery department. Like, he opens. I don't know what you call. Right. What, do you, what do you call the place where you potter? Where you make pottery? A pottery. A pottery. Sure. Yeah. yeah. He opens a drawer and he finds zip ties in there and Whoa. some old photos. I wasn't. I didn't catch what those photos were, but some documenting some sort of physical abuse. Right. They were like Polaroids or something. I yeah. guess he couldn't have taken them to Snappy Snaps, could he? <laughs> he knows something is wrong. He knows something is afoot. And he sees light. From behind a shelving unit on the wall. Yeah. Like a secret door. A door. It is a door. Well, hey, here comes some sort of subdom Narnia. I mean. But then the judge returns, runs into the house. And does Jake go... No, sorry, does Toby get away at that point? I think he does, doesn't he? He does, but we've got to assume what's going on behind that door. is entirely consensual at this point. Next day, Jay's girlfriend is getting disowned by her folks because she's pregnant. Yeah. They've put all her stuff in those... Strange square woven plastic bags with a plaid pattern on the outside. Oh, people have. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, it's, I do. It's like, like a classic. Like washing bags, you know. Yeah, but they're square, aren't they? They're like oblong with a zip. Top. They're really good for putting stuff in. Yeah, yeah. They're like they're your classic getting thrown out of house kind of bag, aren't they? Well, they're classic take stuff to the laundry stuff bags, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess they're cheap, aren't they? That's. One of the reasons. Cheap, but very durable. See how Alan Partridge we've gone without even thinking about it? Can't help it. (laughs) (laughs) Toby tries to tell Jay about what he's seen in the judge's house. You're making me feel self-conscious. I like our digressions, Richard. (laughs) I know, I know, but you can't... What is it about Alan Partridgeisms that make them Alan Partridgeisms? I don't know. The fact that he's everyday in quotidian, but in in a media setting, I think. The fact that he pronounces about things he knows nothing about. Well, we do that all the fucking time. <laughs> Isn't that the only joy of being alive? The only joy of being a middle-aged man. The right to be ignorant. 
Toby is trying to tell Jay, like I'm trying to tell you. He's trying to tell Jay Freedom about of speech. The judge. I, I, I demand my right to be wrong. He's trying to tell Jay about the stuff in the basement, but Jay still doesn't want to know, does he? He wants out. You know, he's got a, he's got a, he's got a, he's got a little kid to think about, hasn't he? Eventually, Toby's desperate, and you know he's desperate because he decides to call the cops on the judge. And he's like hanging out outside, and he sees the police arrive and go in. But the judge completely schmoozes the cops. There's a moment where they hear some knocking, but it's just the washing machine. Yeah. Down in the basement. Yeah, he's like, yeah, I know your boss kind of stuff. And da 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 da. And the fact he's been accommodating, let them in whilst asking them to take off their shoes. He's just very nice and charming, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Icily so. Icily so. Toby's furious about this failure, you know. And his mum, meanwhile, has to go at him and takes his door key because she's sick of him. Like not making anything of himself. For some reason, and I never ever got this, there's a sort of mini thread about his relationship with his mum where yeah. remote controls keep going missing yeah. from the TV and she keeps having to get new ones and he keeps nicking the remote controls. I didn't know. Yeah. Is that, is that part of his security uh, hacking? Potentially, yeah. I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> But he's taken the remote control again, anyway. Well, if you want to zap circuits with infrared, then you'd just you'd extract the gubbins and the and the guts of a of a of a TV remote control, wouldn't you? Infrared, yeah, that popular security like protocol. Hey, I don't know. I'm speculating here. Well, he breaks back in again, doesn't he? Obviously, the judge gets a notification straight away. But this time, he goes straight to that secret door, opens it up, and eventually, he finds. A very thin, bloodied man in this cell, locked in this place. Yeah. But the judge, again, comes back because he was alerted, and they retreat back into the cellar. Uh, Toby tries to hide. The judge goes into the cell. He's talking to the prisoner about wetting himself or something. Grabs a hammer off. Toby charges, surely, doesn't he? Yeah. He grabs a hammer off the shelf, doesn't he? He runs in, but he slips on a mess on the floor. And the judge breaks his teeth open, yeah. With the kills him, yeah. And then we see him destroying the evidence in the pottery incinerator. In the kiln, we see him slicing up a cricket. That would be the word, yeah. (laughs) He slices a cricket bat up from the kiln house. From the kiln house. I thought he was. uh, It was ambiguous to me. It was ambiguous. I thought he was burning the ashes of his cricket bat. He'd so like, did I. <laughs> we, we, we didn't make the assumptive leaps there that we were supposed to. But it wasn't particularly clear, was it? No. Uh, cause it I think it was designed to be ambiguous, wasn't it? Yes, yes. It was designed to be ambiguous. So, yeah, so very Dharma-esque. Exactly. Well, we learn it's even more so later. But it's sometime later. I think it's about 72 hours later because she goes to the police, doesn't she? But Toby's mum is obviously regretting chucking her son out. She's yeah. looking for him with Jay's helping as well. She goes and sees a particular detective sergeant who's going to come in later as well. Jay now realises what Toby's trying to tell him about this judge. He then breaks into the judge's house. Yeah. There's some trickery where he goes down the police station and nicks. No, he's, no he's, he, steals, he steals a letter from, from the judge's house. From the judge's and house. And then promptly gets arrested. He does get arrested because he was hanging... Well, he was in a car outside the judge's house and they find a spliff or something, don't they? But he manages to get out. Probably his girlfriend helps him, no doubt. And then he takes the letter to Toby's place and he, he secretes it in, like, the stash sort of drawer. 
that Toby has, a false drawer where he presumably kept his drugs and stuff. And then gets his mum to come and open the stash box. So now his mum finds this thing about the judge. So now it's it's a way, cleverly, of Jay getting his mum to suspect this judge has got an involvement without having to tell her that he knows anything about it. Yeah. She takes it to the detective sergeant. I don't think they reveal this to to mum, but the detective sergeant is talking with the other cops and they know that Toby's cell phone last pinged at the same address as the judge, you know, the, where the judge lives. Oh. So she pays him a visit. She finds the concealed door in the cellar because she's obviously a shrewd cocky, but it's empty, apparently. There's no, nothing in there. And the judge comes and says it's his panic room. And she says, wait a minute, the spy this hole, why can I see yeah. both ways? It's like almost you want to spy on somebody who's been locked in there. And he briefly... And suddenly... He briefly, yeah. his cover, you know, you know his, his mask is kind of temporarily taken off. Good acting here. Uh, but he quickly regains his composure, doesn't he? Well, he, he shuts the door, doesn't he? Uh, so the other cops can't hear and he whispers at her angrily. <laughs> is that all you've got? I thought you were one of the smart ones. He was really scary. That was good. It was scary. And, but she straight away, she arrests him. I'm not sure she can do that, actually. No, well, she had to be released. There was no evidence, but she got mad, didn't she? She, she? Well, I mean, she was asking him questions. He was answering, okay, maybe out of turn, but in no way was he obstructing the course of a police officer's investigation. But and she knows she's got her guy at the moment, I guess, so she can be a bit of a bully, can't she? But there we go. He does get he does get released. I don't know. Like if I was if I was, you know, what is she? Detective superintendent? I don't know. I'd be fairly wary of Detective you know, Sergeant. I think she's DS, fa- isn't she? Yeah, I'd be fairly wary of falsely arresting a judge. Judge, <laughs> you know what I mean? They tend to know quite a lot about that sort of stuff. But I mean, she's she's you know she sheets to the wind at this point in terms of in terms of caring about what what he thinks. Because I mean, she's got that nose. She just knows. Yeah. Mum finds a USB in Toby's room, and she gives and some it. ease as well. Oh. Really, I didn't notice that. Well, she Jay, did. in the little in the little compartment. Sorry, I think it's from five minutes ago. Little compartment, you know. There's there's a whole pocket, packet full of of stuff to be dealt. And she gives the USB stick to the medical student she was counselling for suicide. Because ah. apparently he's a computer whiz as well. They often are. Yeah. He's going to crack it for her. Now this isn't particularly realistic, really. Computer encryption, you know, is pretty good, right? Let's face it. Unless you're using weak pass- passwords. Something is encrypted electronically. You're not really going to be able to crack it. I kind of glanced over this, but jumping forward, what what does it reveal that USB? I don't really remember. Not very much, does it? It can't, can it? Because he didn't have very long to investigate. She is on the case, isn't isn't she, Mum? She's trying to track stuff down. She follows the judge. It's not stalking outside his home club. Oh yeah, sorry to the gentleman's club. Yeah, a gentleman's club. Yeah, and. There, the judge is speaking to an Iranian masseur. Is it a masseur or masseuse? Masseur. It's a gender thing, isn't it? One of those pointless gendered it's things. Like it's still engendered, yeah. Author and authoress. We don't need them. I don't even know why we have gendered pronouns, if I'm honest. They seem pointless. I, and I especially hate gendered titles. Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Ms. is awful, isn't it? Why should Why should women have to indicate whether or not they're married or have been married even. It's a fucking title. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Anyway. <laughs> this uh, Iranian masseur <laughs> is massaging the judge, and he's speaking to him quite solicitously and talking with him about 
why he's there. He's an asylum seeker. He's gay and left Iran. Oh, was he gay? All right, okay. Uh, Well, yeah, that's what he was saying. He had to leave Iran. He's claiming asylum here in the UK. And the judge is going, well, maybe I can help you out uh, with your asylum claim. You know I can make things a lot easier for you. He asks him what time he finishes. Uh, He's established that this Masur guy doesn't no longer communicates with his parents, who have presumably disowned him. Mm. Toby's mum is now spying on this and seeing the judge bringing this young kind of boy home. Very Dharma-esque. And in the house there, he makes him a and t He tells him, go and put on some music from my vinyl collection, which so is... So it's back in fashion. I mean, I'd be out of there straight away, frankly. <laughs> Wait, what, you don't have Spotify, really? <laughs> Apparently, the boy has put on the Nutcracker Suite. Sort of, is that a coded message? I don't know. And they're talking about his father's portrait hanging over the mantelpiece. And at this point, the judge is now revealing stuff about his father. Apparently, he's such a farty boy <laughs> so, into the house. It's just, I'm sorry, it's so Judge Pickles, this sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. It's like, oh, of course, he's a closeted homosexual, and he took this boy uh, and then into he, his, bed. his bed. You know, like, his mother killed himself. I killed herself, yeah. It's like, what on earth, you know? Like, well, Judge Blake got sent to boarding school. And I, you know, he said, I really hated that peasant. And then the other guy says, that's a bit racist. Well, technically, no, it's not racist, is it? You know, I mean, he was a peasant because he was a refugee or maybe maybe he was a refugee because he was a peasant. There's lots of other reasons why he might be a refugee, but it's not really racist, is it? You know, if a man's shouting in the pub and I say, you know, shut up, shut up, you loudmouth person. The insult loudmouth doesn't refer to his gender, does it? It's not sexist, is it? And so he was simply referring to the fact he's peasant background. Okay, That might be correlated with more incidents of peasantry for people that are refugees or not. But I think he generally didn't like the fact he was a peasant in, in his house. So, so yeah. So I didn't really agree with the refugee on that point. I, I don't think it indicated his racism. I don't think that was the most problematic or troubling no. part of that story. <laughs> no, but it's a common logic these days. Like, if, if, like, if somebody uh, has some sort of identification, you insult them. By default, somehow you're also insulting, insulting their, their identity. identity, and you're not necessarily, are you? although you might be, you know. And he's a judge, and he's disguised the fact that he's not really sympathetic to to uh, to refugees for a long, long time. So, given that, we I, I think we're supposed to know that he doesn't like refugees. The guy, this is the point you see, is that he's like his character wouldn't know that, would they? So it's almost like the writer can't see into the perspective that his characters would have. Now, if you've been also watching the Dharma series, you'll probably have guessed that the G&T the judge gave to this Least. Iranian boy was drugged. It was spiked. Have you ever been spiked, Richard? I didn't think so, but, you know, I, and there may have been an occasion where I was spiked. I but it's... I mean, I mean, having lived in Vietnam, Cambodia and China before China became ridiculously, really, really futuristically wealthy, I, I've had methanol poisoning. <laughs> several hundred times, you know. It's okay. like you, you drink like a pint of beer. You think, oh, that's enough. I'm feeling strangely kind of dizzy. You wake up the next morning with the worst hangover ever. But I've actually been, I, I'm assuming, well, I've, I've been spiked with, with party drugs, you know, once or twice, but I was I was spiked with something like Rehypnol or something like that. And, uh, yeah, it's a fairly terrifying experience when you wake up. Like, 
Although I, you just I don't know what's spiked. You don't know what's happened, you know. You don't know. I don't uh, think I've had any memory lapses. I might have been spiked with party drugs as well, come to think of it. Oh, you probably possible. Are. If you've ever drunk at a bar, you know, whether in your other generation, where you're out with 20 or 30 people, somebody. I, it's just incredible that people would do that. Well, I mean, we're finding out these days it's really common amongst the younger generation now, isn't it? it a couple of years ago, just. Was it the beginning of COVID lockdown where it was like in the news or, you know, just how many young women were being spiked uh, with really dangerous stuff? But yeah, I think it's probably likely that people have just, yeah, a bit of fun, give Ricky, give Ricky something he doesn't necessarily want in his drink. You know? I mean, I think in the, in the event, it was probably difficult for anyone to have made me do something I wasn't perfectly willing to do anyway. So <laughs> I got away lightly well, in that instance. So that was it. I, I kind of woke up from this stuff. Somebody else was just waking up from it, and the people that had obviously done it to us had kind of flitted out, and I don't know why they did it. Uh, I kind of do. They kind of took advantage of a girl. But anyway, so I walked out on the street, and yeah, I was really up for stuff afterwards that I don't necessarily <laughs> regret, you know. But yeah, that, exactly. that, that night, yeah, things did happen that normally, <laughs> you know, I probably wouldn't have gone home with those exact people that I did go home with. But yeah, but but the time I'd done that, although... The kind of disinhibitory effect of the drug was still present. The kind of, you know, complete, well, knockout, knockouts, uh, you know, sleep effects of it had worn off. So, so yeah. But it's unconscionable, even if, even if nothing happens in the end, or even if, you know, all that happens is the drugging, that in itself is, it's a, a you know, a, what's the word? It's an insult of bodily autonomy, isn't it? That's yeah. The, yeah. the terrible thing. In this case, of course, uh, his intentions are entirely terrible, but Ravi manages to escape, doesn't he? He gets out of there. Yeah, I wasn't really too convinced about that. It's important for the plot of the film, Paul, because Toby's mum is watching outside and sees Ravi escape, so she knows something weird is going on, because I think he is escaping not fully clothed, possibly. Ah, is that right? Yeah, that's I, right. I can't remember that. Jay and Liz, his mum's name, is, isn't it? They discuss the judge and what to do. Uh, and meanwhile, the judge tracks down Ravi again and threatens him with being deported if he doesn't... And weirdly, Ravi gets in the car. Yeah. Wow. Having been drugged, yeah, you'd think twice about That's that. That's the weird thing in, in the Dharma I've just finished watching, actually, which is very bingeable. I can see why people watch it. Uh, I think we've spoken privately away from the podcast about our reservations we have about portrayals of various things in the, in, in the Dharma series. But the uh, like the little Laotian boy, he goes to Dharma's flat knowing his, his brother has been assaulted. Been there, yeah. by, you know, so. so I guess it is credible in a certain sort of way. It, wait, he said he needed the money or his family needed the money, so was it purely yeah. financial? Or do you think he was trying to get revenge? I don't know. don't know. It, it, that is mysterious, isn't it? And yeah. exactly the kind of thing that could only fly in a true drama, you know, a true story. It doesn't scan very well for a fictional story, does it? I think if you look at, if, if you look at some of the histories of the, you know, the victims, I think the, there was a young American Indian boy of a similar age who was murdered, 14 or 15, and he actually was, uh, you know, uh, he was involved in rough trade, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so it's not inconceivable that he might have agreed to go back knowing that he would be paid for something that had a sexual nature kind of thing, because he knew that sure. it was so bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think at this point they've tried to report Ravi to the cops, but the masseuse has disappeared, so they can't speak to him, get a statement from him. We see the judge in his cellar 
researching Toby's mum, Liz, while you hear a prisoner banging on the cell door. And he looks outside the house at one point and, and sees... There she is. Yeah, Liz. And he goes out for his morning run. Does something clever with the keys where he pretends to put the keys away in a, in a, a little... in a thing behind the, behind the electric gate? I think he's... I think what he's doing there is he's putting his keys in a lockbox or a box next but to the gate. But not really putting them in there. No, I think he's trying to make it obvious so that Liz can see how to get in, to ah. tempt her to break in. He's got a plan. He's going to be there when she breaks in, basically. Yeah. And what I've got to say, Jay's on board now, isn't he? He's more on board than he was. I think he's convinced that, you know. Yeah, she wants uh, Jay to help her break into the house. She's found some stuff on the USB stick. But I'm not sure what she she could have found on there, really. We just it's blur, it's relevant kind of thing, isn't it? It's it's such, it's probably the details of which don't probably kind of mean anything whatsoever. But yeah, she's found stuff on there, and she breaks in using the key from the key box. While he's cleverly pretending. To, well, he's pretending to go for a run, but he knows yeah. she's out there, so he's obviously going to come back through the back entrance and wait for her to come in. And then we get the kind of one jump square, jump scare in the movie where she's crawling through the house. She opens a wardrobe and she sees her own reflection in the mirror and kind of jumps. He catches her. Uh, she tries to flee. Uh, he sends a letter to Jay, I think. Is that right? Um, uh, meanwhile, she's been chained up in and the cellar. Has, and he forces her to watch him execute the prisoner. Is that right? Or cut up the body of the masseur. Oh, something like that, yeah. He cuts him up while she has to watch. And he's burning the bodies in the kiln, as we've discussed. So it really was Toby's ashes we saw him pouring down the toilet and flushing. Eventually, Jay does break into Blake's place. But everything has been packed away. He's gone. (laughs) But... The judge is making a speech at his old school, isn't he? And uh, Jay follows him from the speech back to his old country pile. He's very rich. And he, find, he finds that out because his wife uh, knows, you know, from law connections, law school connections, that the judge is making the speech. Although I think he's split up with his wife because she was tired of him keeping secrets from him. Fair enough, yeah. So he follows the judge. Did you say this? Yeah. I'm sorry if I'm repeating. To his old country, to his pile in the country, yeah, to the Oast, to the Oast yeah. house, yes. And uh, it's very grand, and they've obviously paid, in terms of production budget, to hire this house up for a few days to do the film. <laughs> uh, well done. Well done, Netflix. Well, well done, you know, the people have got financed by, by Netflix to do this. And it's quite a grand little setting, and pretty creepy, and lots of creaky staircases. And Jay breaks in, is that right? Yeah, but he's attacked with a cricket bat, isn't he? There's a good fight scene, yeah, where the judge very inventively drops things onto Jay from the top of the staircase to the bottom of the staircase. They fight. The judge has a knife. Jay beats him up. They go into the pottery barn. He's got an entire barn now. And again, there's another concealed door behind shelves. Really, bit of a one-trick kind of concealer, isn't he? And he finds prisoner number one, and he calls the cops, obviously, and then and then legs it out of there. And D.S. Ella arrives and she finds the judge tied up with duct tape in the house and obviously that prisoner who was in the pottery barn. End of we see I came by tagged triumphantly. Yeah, so he's, it's a, a, a memoriam really, isn't it, to Toby and their work. But a lot of people are dead. Paul, <laughs> at the end of this film. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people are dead, yeah. And... Is there a metaphor about, you know, voiceless K-1000 
captive illegal immigrants occupying a netherworld uh, in our societies because of their lack of legal status. Probably, possibly, who cares? Uh, but yeah, I mean, lots of dead people, a mother and a son. Uh, and uh, yeah, a precautionary tale about the dangers of tagging, I guess. And an Iranian masseur. Yeah, three dead. Well, four, presumably. Maybe more. Who knows? We don't know how many he's done. But are we to believe that the prisoner that we see, the very thin... Has been there prisoner, all the time, yeah. yeah. Is that Ravi, the, the boy, the Farsi boy who seduced his father? Yes, and, yeah. He's kept him all this time. Kept him all this time, you see. Meanwhile, killing other you immigrants. See, yeah, cities. psychologically, if you've, got the, if you've got the original victim, you know that you want to take revenge upon, you wouldn't really carry on doing, you know, you wouldn't really carry on doing it to other people, would you, necessarily? But there we go. And the weakness here is, like, if if you've got a lockup that you're afraid of being discovered, so you've got a backup, you wouldn't just replicate the same lockup situation, would you? No, exactly. I think you might change, you might think to change your modus, modus operandi. operandi. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because I mean, he's quite sophisticated. You know, he's better than he's better than Dennis Nielsen. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't put whole mem- body body parts down the uh, down the drains, does he? No, indeed. He no. incinerates them. Gives them a free I, funeral. I wonder whether you can incinerate a body in a pottery kiln, though. Well, yeah, I mean, Dharma he crushed the bones. He, he cooked them and dried them, and, and was able to crush them fairly well afterwards, wasn't he? So a kiln. I mean, it does get hot in there. You know, it does. Six hundred, seven hundred. But I don't think it's kind of like uh, cremation. Eats, is it? So, I, I just felt, you know, given how much money he has, because we get to see his country pile, and it's it's a multi-million pound house. His townhouse in London is multi-million pounds. You know, given how much money he has, you'd think that he wouldn't. You think he'd spend a bit more on his setup and not have it in his own bloody house? Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, quite so. Paul, when I asked you if this was a horror, and you said, "Oh, it's definitely a horror." You didn't know that because you hadn't seen it. Again. No. <laughs> hey, come on, you bought the product, Richard. I've seen some customer rumours here, but come on, it's past 14 days. You can't return it now. I think it does deliver on the promise of being a horror in the end, although at the start it didn't seem like that at all. It's another one of those weird movies that, you know, he's bending the genres all over the yeah. place. Yeah, Because it starts out a bit like a kind of, Crime drama, police it procedural type a thing. A bit like Cracker, doesn't it? Like, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, and as has... slow as Cracker, you know, because Cracker's there to take up the minutes for the adverts, kind of thing. Well, Cracker <laughs> could do in twenty-five minutes what it does in, in two hours. You know what I mean? And this was pretty similar. It's like you felt that some of the conversations, uh, some of the you know the scenes were just there to fill up the ninety minutes, kind of stuff. But I like what you say about the social commentary that maybe it is saying something about society's treatment of asylum seekers and stuff. It, if it is a metaphor though, it's very broad, broadly written, right? Isn't it? You know, having a judge who's literally a slaver kind of thing. <laughs> and it gives us no insight to the condition. Does it really? It's, it's like, yeah, well that's the metaphor. So, so what, you know, I mean, it's, it's not a mechanistic, it's not, it's not a working model, is it? So it's simply, simply, it's not analogical, is it? It's simply a metaphor. Arguably also a bit homophobic. You know, the, the judge ascribes his <laughs> hatred to his father's yeah, homosexual Yeah, the, there's lots of prosecutor's fallacies going on here with the characterisation, isn't there? 
you know what I mean? Mm. And it kind of extends from that comment, you know, like, if, if, you, if you say he's a peasant, then you're racist kind of thing. It's kind of like, it's just too convenient that the upper middle class people are all desperately, desperately, secretly horrible people who are just very good at masking their true intentions, you know. I'm sure, you know, there is this subset of the establishment that does use that power in a manipulative and evil way. But I think just to extend that to kind of like, he's, he's just a judge as far as we can see. Yeah? It just so happens that he's a judge that's like that. I, I, I don't know. It's like, it's just painted all a bit too, a bit too conveniently. It's almost like plot armor in the way the characters just fall. The characterization falls into place, you know, to fit this idea of how people are facing injustice and to fit this idea of mm, who in the liberal establishment would be the perpetrators of this injustice. So, so yeah. It's a strange confection on the whole. Hmm. I wonder how we're going to score it. Acting. I, lo- I, adored, acting. I adored Hugh Bonneville. I thought he was really good in this. It was strong from them all. I loved seeing Kelly McDonald. She was great. Mm. Uh, George McKay doesn't get much screen time. Actually, does he? Because he actually gets killed. Pretty soon, fairly yeah. quickly. Yeah. yeah. So I thought Hugh Bonneville was pretty much the strongest of the set. That kind of tense politeness that he managed to convey, which you see in all judges, you know, of, of that you know age and social status. But the way he worked that into the fact that this judge was concealing something that we very rarely, we very rarely saw the mask slip. But when the mask slipped, and those two moments, you know, that moment when he whispered kind of menacingly in kind of Anthony Hopkins' Silence of the Lambs way into the, into the into the investigating policewoman's ear, I thought those moments, were, although they were few and far between, they're really, really well done. And in counterpoint to this all kind of very serene middle class facade that he puts on. So yeah, I love the acting. I mean, Jay, arguably, you could say that you know his his role there was just to just to see the movie out you kind of think because because everybody was dying basically you know it's very strange how he wasn't the central character at the beginning do you see what i'm saying yes yeah it is strange if he was going if he was going to last it out you you'd kind of expect him to be the focal point at the beginning as opposed to his mate who snuffs it after 25 minutes so that was weird and unbalanced i thought but that's not to do with the acting the acting i'm going to score 8 and 0.5 that's fair. I'll also give it an eight. It is strange, though, in terms of writing, which we can come on to next, and plot. As you say, the way the focus shifts from character to character as they either die or... I mean, the thing with Jay is, for quite a lot of the beginning, he's not interested, right? Yeah. You know, he's, he wants out. And then, you know, he, uh, Toby's mum has to take over but, as uh, the main yeah, protagonist. Yeah, I mean, because he ends up as the main protagonist, we want to see from his perspective what changed his mind about why he wants to help Mum. But all we see is Jay turn up one day not interested, and then the next day he's interested. So <laughs> it's, it's from Mum's perspective and not his. It was just a really strange decision in terms of where the focus went, in terms of character development and, and you know, the character arcs. Strange. And very little screen time for the policewoman DS Ella, Ella Lloyd, I think. You know, if this was like a police crime thing, she would clearly have been the, the, the policewoman tracking down this serial killing judge. Hmm. So Very strange. The, the writing lacked a little bit of dimensionality, I thought. Yeah, it's peculiar and it's a little bit cartoonish, isn't it, on the whole? Mm. And some of the dialogue was quite stilted. It was like, oh, we need a tete-a-tete about this. Oh, we need a heart-to-heart about this. And then it just kind of filled itself with words that 
slotted into that that variety of, of film dialogue. So the writing, I'm going to have to score it a five. I think it's a bit better than that. It's quite tense, don't you think? It it drove the story on. You wanted to find out what was going to happen. And I, I think some of the turns were quite interesting. Do you think it was imaginative in terms of escapes and, and, and jump scares? No, a bit pedestrian. And, and, a bit and pedestrian. the fight scenes. I, I would like to understand more about whether that was Ravi, that we're assuming that it is, and why he got to be kept while everyone else got to be killed. I don't know, it was interesting, but I'll give it a six on the whole. Hmm. We said it was horror. Was it horror? I don't know. Well, we can do... What about sca- scariness? Scare factor. Yeah. If there is anything scary in the world, it is drink-drugging serial killers, isn't it? Although this one might be fictional, it's clearly based on real events in some senses, isn't it? As, we, as da- the Dharma series proves, there's nothing too untoward in some senses about the way he approached doing this. For horror, I'll give it a seven. I'm going to give it a six and say no more. Last category, how about depictions of modern Britain? Did, <laughs> did you think this rang true? Because, I mean, it's obvious it's trying to be kind of real, isn't it, about it all? Disappointing lack of Banksy creativity. <laughs> I mean, did it, did it screenwrote modern Britain to you, or was it just... What, Gentleman's <laughs> Club? You know, cosy relationship between judge and policeman? I don't know, maybe it's all too, it's all a bit too convenient and it's took down pat, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I'll give it a six at best for this. Side. Five from me. Okay, final scores, Richard. I'm just totting mine up. Final scores. Look, I think if you want to see Kelly McDonald again in quite an interesting role, it's worth it. Six overall. 6.5 from me. Not a bad one, you know. Uh, it, it, it didn't really drag at any point, although it is quite slow to get going. And, uh, yeah, I don't think it's a waste of anybody's 90 minutes' time. No, it isn't a waste. Satisfyingly average. Paul, then, for next week, let's do more horror. Horror. Right. So, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a Halloween. Get your cinema lattes ready for more horror. So the question is, what are we doing next week, Richard? What on earth that is the question. are we going to talk about? Who's suggesting and who's choosing? Uh, I think you can suggest if you want to. <laughs> I'll suggest then, okay. I'm going to suggest, first of all, a movie that we keep, I keep suggesting and keeps getting batted back, called It Follows. Uh Uh-huh. It Follows. Uh, There's a movie called The Black Phone, which looks interesting. The Black Phone? Phone, The Black Phone. And then there's another movie, possibly, but there seem to be at least three movies called this, so I don't know which one I mean. Uh, But there is a movie called The Watcher. There's several movies called The Watcher, Richard, and there's a TV series called that too. Yes, yeah. What, what, what do you fancy, Paul? Well, given the logistical difficulties of resolving your last option, uh, <laughs> and given the fact you said nothing about the second one, I'm going to go for the one that you've been waiting for forever. Okay, it follows. Yes. Guessing. It's a Halloween horror. Definitely a horror, yeah. And it's, it's kind of a new horror, a new horror kind of thing, I think. But I don't know. Until I've seen it, I can't comment. Join us next week, episode 12, series 3 of Drive-By Cinema, where we'll be looking at It Follows. It Follows. Until then, goodbye. Ciao for now. See you in the next one.
Thank you.